0: Hey guys, welcome back to Game Changers podcast. This is your co-host Harsh and Jaden, And today we, with, with us, we have a very, very special guest, um, an extremely knowledgeable person, someone uh, I think we can all look up to and learn from. Uh, he is Nan- um, Yancy Strickler, uh, co-founder of Kickstarter and former CEO of Kickstarter, a multi-million uh, dollar company which allowed other entrepreneurs to get funding for their business. He's an author, he's founded a great con- concepts like Bentoism, and you know we're going to have an amazing conversation with him today, getting to know a little bit more about all that stuff and a bit about him as a person. So welcome, Yancy.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
2: Appreciate that. Appreciate that. It.
1: It's good to have you on here.
0: So I guess, Yancy, to start off, uh, I mean, tell us what's going on for you now. You know, if you stepped down from uh, Kickstarter a while ago. What's going on in your life right now?
2: uh well there's this thing called COVID 19 um and uh no uh uh yeah i I stepped away from kickstarter three years ago um after working on that for over 10 years i first focused on writing a book i spent a year and a half writing um kind of a philosophical manifesto um imagining really a, a kind of an optimistic vision for the future um, and and how I think forces that are currently at play are, are are evolving, and how they're going to shift the world. And and out of that came this idea of bentoism, um, which is a, a framework and a philosophy for identifying our our real self interest and in a way for us to see beyond this sort of passive awareness that we have of the world, where we only see things according to what now me wants, what our individualist yeah. short term desires are. Um, And Bentoism instead argues that our our self-interest is four dimensional. It is now me, what we want right now as individuals. It's also future me, what the older, wiser version of us that we hope to become wants us to do, like that person becomes real or not real based on the choices we make. There's also now us, the people in our lives who we're responsible for and who we care about, whose our choices impact them all the time, and then future us. Because our, cho- our choices of course affect our kids and everybody else's kids too. And so the, the limitation of our most recent world and what we have today is it's extreme focused on now me self-interest. And we see anything beyond now me is like nebulous, emotional, less real somehow. Uh, but like our best selves and our full potential lie in, in seeing that full dimensionality of ourselves. And so I, I teach this in workshops three times a week, all on Zoom, and that's under an umbrella called the Bento Society, and that's a group of now 200 strong people who are um, really approaching life through the lens of these uh, these dimensions of themselves, who are coming together on a weekly basis, and and we think are you know are, are modeling out a different way to think about life, and so my the larger cause I'm on is. on this notion of of shifting how we see self-interest and i believe by doing that it shifts the values that are important in our society it shifts the way we make collective decisions it changes what's valuable um and and my feeling is that by changing our perception of our responsibilities to ourselves and one another that like that's where the best possible version of us exists and and i'm I'm just, I'm very optimistic about people. I think we're all doing the best we can with what we know. So the question is, well, what don't we know that could help us? And I believe like really seeing our impact in this clearer way is, is like the crucial shift that I'm just convinced all kinds of great stuff is on the other side of.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a concept that's very foreign to me. I've never heard of it. So, I mean, it's, in layman's terms, like, um, I feel like it'd be helpful if you gave an example. So, let's say, uh, how would you, in your own personal situation, apply this theory uh, if you came to it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so what I teach people to do in, in these workshops, and you can go to bentoism.org to, like, see what it looks like. Um, but just picture a simple four boxes, a two-by-two two matrix. And um, the bottom left is now me, and the bottom right is future me. The top left is now us and the top right is future us. And in each of these, I have, a, I have an idea of what my values and priorities are. I did this by going through a simple brainstorming exercise where I write down, well, what, what does my now me want to need? Like on a daily basis, what do I need to feel safe and secure? You know, I need to be healthy. I need to exercise. I, I need to be loved. I need to be working on something that's challenging, right? You like draw out what it is you need. But then you also ask, your future self. So for me to live up to like the ultimate version of me, what is true of that person? And you, you know, the sort of exercise you can go through to try to visualize that future version of yourself. I think of it as like my inner Obi-Wan Kenobi that I want to one day become. And I'm trying to like yeah. let that person whisper to me, you know, you know, words of wisdom for to think about my us. Um, I picture all the people I care about, uh, I care about the most, my family, my core friends, you know, coworkers. and I visualize them all sitting together on a couch, and I, like, take a Polaroid when they're all together, and I picture their faces, and I, like, make decisions trying to think about those people, um, and then the future us is similar. Um, now, I use this practically um, in, in two different ways all the time. Number one is that every week, and this is one of the Zoom workshops I do, every week I make my to-do list using the bento. And so I draw a blank Bento and I say, I write at the top, how should I use my energy in the next seven days? And I ask each box individually. So I ask my now me, what do I need to do in the next seven days? And my now me is always like my work stuff, my errands, you know, just like the things you have to do, what's on your to-do list. When I ask my future me, what does it want me to do in the next seven days to become them? My future me will like remind me of a skill I'm trying to master or like a certain discipline or ritual I've been keeping up like to to make sure I keep doing it. it. It reminds me to learn, you know, and it's sort of like always highlighting these things that don't have this immediate payoff, but are like building towards something. My now us I'm picturing that couch and I'm, I'm literally writing down the list of friends that like, I feel like I need to give some love to, you know, who haven't I talked to? And so every week I'm writing down like the top four people that I feel like I need to be more in touch with. And I, and they, they go on my to-do list for the week ahead and the future us I'm imagining. Let's picture the butterfly effect is real and that whatever small things I do now will have implications much longer. Well, what should I do differently if I'm conscious about that? How could I be more of a teacher? How could I set a better example? And again, I write these things down and I translate these into like a literal to-do list that I cross off. And to where I am actively manifesting who I want to become. Because otherwise I'm just, what I'm waiting for the day that I magically wake up and I am that person. Yeah. Right? Like how, and, and I'm waiting for the world to somehow become what I think it should be. Why, because I'm wishing really hard? Like, no, it's about, it's about being active. So that's one way. The other way I use it is to make decisions. So I have in each of my bento's, I have, and I'm looking at it right now in front of me. I have like my core values. I'll hold it in front of you. Um, I have my core goal. So my now me bento, uh, my now me, it wants to show people the matrix. When I went through this whole exercise, I came down to like, when when am I my best self? It's when I'm like connecting ideas, showing people how the world works, and that's like what makes me happy. I think that's my greatest skill. So like that's my now me. That's what it wants to do. My future me is telling me to create harmony. I'm a, my parents divorced when I was young. So my whole life was like being a peacemaker. I'm always a peacemaker. That's also a problem, but that's like something important to me. And also this value of never selling out. Like when I went through what's so core to me, it's like abandoning a person or my values for reasons of money. That was like the worst thing I could imagine doing. So like that voice is always telling me that. My now us is telling me about to have deep time, real focused time with a core group of friends. Like. When I'm with my friends, never look at my phone, like always be there, be that friend. That's who I need to be for people. And my future us, what's the world I want to see? I want a world with a better matrix. Not that there isn't a matrix, but like, how is the matrix helping us out? So when I face choices, I ask them against these boxes. So like a, a literal choice I got or question I got was I got asked to do a paid speech for a company that I don't respect and that i don't like and whenever i've been asked to do those in the past i've always said no um because i'm just like hell no like you suck why would i why would i do that and uh and i got asked that after i made my bento after i had this idea and i thought i got to ask this question so the way you ask your bento is you ask each dimension of yourself individually because they're all going to have different voices so my now me which says show people the matrix it says yo like doing a talk sounds great we're showing people the matrix like that's what we do My now us, which wants a deep time, says, yeah, hour and a half to talk about ideas. Like, we're down, that's cool. We've got no problem with that. My future us, which wants a better matrix, says, yo, like, you can't just be preaching to the choir. This is exactly what you gotta be doing. Yes, you should do it. And then my future me voice, which has this voice of don't sell out, said, no, you're just doing this for the money. You're corrupting yourself. And I realized that this voice that had made me say no to these things in the past was my future me. And then my future me was like a bouncer looking out for my values. This big dude standing outside that said, no, no, like you you can't come in. But yet, because I could look at like my entire self, because I could think like coherently about myself, I could overrule that voice. I could say, no, it's cool, I got this. And I could do it knowing that I wasn't betraying a core value. Like normally for me, doing something that is for money makes me extremely uncomfortable. But in this case, I could really look at myself and be like, you know what, actually the thing that does fulfill me and and who I most deeply am is totally the opposite of what I thought it was gonna be. So I'm constantly striving towards this kind of coherence is the word I use where I'm like acting in a way that's like in integrity with who I am. Because what I've learned, what what I've learned is two things. One, that it feels better, it feels better. But two, and I think maybe most importantly, is that I'm just much better at it. Like I'm much better at doing things when I try to do them this way, just like, just things play out better. And, and, and it's because I'm doing things in a way that I think naturally fits with who I am, what I care about, what I'm good at. And so it, they all just sort of come together in this, in this really positive way. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's the bento.
1: Yeah. And it seems like, uh, like lots of people agree with you because on your book, um, your book here has a lot of uh, people that agreed with it and gave references for the back, like the Wall Street Journal, uh, Simon Senek, and uh, Seth Godin, some really uh, really popular artists or popular authors in the business space there.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I was very, um, yeah, I mean, I've never, I was a writer, you know, before Kickstarter, I was a journalist, I was a music journalist and I was a writer. It was my first time as an author and, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a fantastic process and I, yeah. And I was very fortunate to have some of those folks read it and, um, and really love it. You know, I wasn't, um, you know, I felt, uh, I think the right word is terrified, um, about my book and it felt like to me, like the biggest swing I could possibly take. And, um, which is why I took it. But of course, as you're doing it, you're like, oh wait, <laughs> this is, this is a big swing. This is a big thing. Uh, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of imposter syndrome feeling, um, and, um, that I felt, you know, I felt through Kickstarter too. That's, that's partially my own internal story. Uh, yeah. but, but the process of trying to spend a year and a half to like, you know become clear about an idea to try to express it in a way where um you're trying to create a very specific feeling in a reader um and and then to go through the process of having to defend that and to interact with people about it um you know it it teaches you a lot and and for me the covid post-covid has been a real tremendous learning experience because i i just immediately just started doing weekly workshops and the same way i was like journaling every sunday my to-do list for the week ahead using the bento second week of COVID, i thought well why don't i just see if anyone wants to do this with me like all i'm doing is writing on a piece of paper i could easily just have have the camera on and like just give someone else directions and we do it together so i did it that first week and i think 25 people showed up and they loved it and it just worked and so we just have kept doing it Um, and so COVID, you know did open up this space where we all had to adjust, we had to adjust our time, we had to adjust our definitions of ourselves, and we've all had to like been put in this place of of questioning and um, and and having a moment of pause, uh, like mandatory mass reflection and pause. It just is is outrageous. It's it's an outrageous sort of experience we're going through, and. Um, and 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 so the bento has has been a I think a really relevant way to make sense of the world we're in now because like the the short term individualism of before is clearly like kind of death now like that's all you're doing you're miserable at this moment like you need other people you need large yeah. bowls you need you need an idea of what the world is going to look like other than I hope we go back to January 2020 soon um, and and so this is just it, our our real life events are forcing us are are forcing us to evolve and um and and what's wild to me is i just keep thinking like to future generations this moment will be inevitable right like like now if you think about jfk if someone talks about jfk you immediately think oh yeah like this promise unfulfilled, like this, this guy that got killed at like, you know, brutally at this, at this moment, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, what, what a, what a loss. The future is going to look at the economy and the world that we had of, especially between the 1980s and the 20 in 2020 as this thing that was like this, you know, this out of control party, but that had this inevitable brutal stop coming. That we didn't, oh, yeah, we didn't see. True. Right. And then in the past it's all just gonna be looked at that way. and the future, we're gonna be looked back at that as like that was always gonna happen. That was always gonna happen. And so how we'll be we judged is what do we do with this moment? Right. Yeah. It, the party was always gonna stop on Jan- and, and you know, in February 2020. And the question is, how did how did people respond? And like only only those of us alive now will perceive how unexpected will will know what a record scratch it is. But for all future moments, this is just inevitable. This is just something that of course was like was always happening. Um, And so it's just, um, it's just interesting because we we are the ones who are navigating this, right? We are are the most blind. We we know the most, we're also the most blind and we are the ones that have to navigate this moment.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. uh, That's like a forced reflection because I don't know about you, Harsh, I don't know if, if you probably have experienced something like this, but for me, like, I'm usually like fast, go everywhere. Like I'm busy all the time. But then once COVID started, I had to slow down. I like, I kind of realized who I was as a person, discovered my interests, uh, like what my passion is, like, and kind of really took a look at everything. And, and I ended up um, by accident, like starting my first like actual business. And stuff kind of started and was forced into flow because of COVID. I kind of, it just forced me to slow down and look at things from a different perspective.
2: Mm.
0: And I think that's uh, like, when you talk about the half glass full, half glass empty, I think this is like the half glass full part where, especially for Gen Zs and like our generation, there's even millennials we're exposed to so much stimulation and um, we're so busy all the time. and so distracted and our, day-to-day just busy being busy and where there's a lack of um lack of time where we're spending just with ourselves and just creating some self-awareness and reflecting on our values our experiences who we are as a person like you said about bentoism right like who who we want what we want now and what we want in the future and what we need to do now to get to that future self and i think it's um that's one of the most beautiful things that come out of this where even for me personally, like I've, I've developed a lot. You're forced into this um, uncomfortable situation where you have no choice, but to grow, learn and adapt. And I think a lot of people, um, obviously there's been a lot of, uh, loss and like tragedy, tragedy, but there's also been a lot of growth for a lot of people. And the people that know how to take advantage of an opportunity or make their own opportunities. I think those people have really found success through this and, just created so much self-awareness and learned so much about themselves. And, um, now they know a lot more about who they want to become.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to sound trite, except to say the world, you know, there is no going back to the world before, and this is, we're on a new script and, um, and you know, the, 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 the script, the map we've been using to make sense of the world doesn't apply anymore. And we still haven't learned. It's gonna take us a while to figure that out. But this, yeah. is, this is something fundamentally different. And, um, and so in a space like this, it is um, legitimately terrifying. And, and every fear we feel is, is, is just. Um, this is also a moment that is extraordinarily opportunistic. Where um, because because our map our maps have been made irrelevant, anybody saying, "Hey, here's here's where we're going. Here's 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 the deal," um, has the potential to be heard. Because I think genuinely nobody really knows, and so um, there is the opportunity if you speak with authority and boldness and you have a story that makes sense and, and it seems to reflect the world around us more truthfully than whatever, and what we would believed before, I think you have a high likelihood of being adopted at this moment. I mean, there's a very famous phrase um, called a paradigm shift. Undoubtedly, you've heard the phrase paradigm shift before. I've um, heard
0: it,
2: yeah. Yeah. And it comes from this book um, called The the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, written by this man named Thomas Kuhn in the 1960s. And he analyzes it's a book analyzing how science has evolved. And what he finds is that science will operate off of a current, uh, of, of a certain theory of the world, like uh, Copernicus's theory of like how the earth and the sun move around one another. Um, and, uh, and that the w- science will operate according to that theory, but then, over time, there will become enough sort of like anomalies in the data or in a like observed reality that don't make sense according to that theory. And that at a certain point, that world will go into a kind of a crisis state where everyone's like, what the hell? What's up? What's down? And that out of this crisis state, uh, what will emerge is what he calls a paradigm shift. And a paradigm is a new way of defining reality that allows the things that didn't make sense in the previous regime to now make sense. So you're sort of like taking the, what is irrational, but real and instead making it real and rational and by then better explaining the world, um, then you become a more valuable lens for seeing the world and then that starts to become how everyone operates, all their mindsets operate. And so he talks about there being these two, these sort of series of steps. One is a crisis. We're having the crisis now. Number two is then the paradigm. So then what is the argument for the new way of seeing the world that makes more sense than the previous way of seeing? And then the third step is what he calls normal science. And this is where scientists, regular people, have the paradigm, have the new theory about how things work, and then they actually try using it. And then when they try using it, they discover just through the iterative process of science, What is true and what is untrue about that idea? And as that process goes on, and you sort of like close off certain doors and open up other ones, you create like laws and real knowledge. And it goes from a theory to like something that is practical and usable in every situation. And that we're constantly like knowledge is constantly turning in this way. Um, And so, uh, a goal of, of profit maximization, individual fulfillment. That has been the dominant story of the past 50 years. That is like what has driven the culture of the past 50 years. That can no longer be the culture because the challenges we have now are climate change. That's a collective problem that cannot be solved by money. We also have all sorts of collective social problems that have arisen because of our extreme individualism. We're also growing up and now as networked organisms because of the internet. And so the way we think about ourselves is gonna be less individualistic over time. And finally, In the next 20 years, all of the boomers will die. All of the boomers will die. And instead, my generation, Generation X, we will be the oldest generation. it will go Gen X, it'll go then, you know, then Millennial, then Gen Z, and then Gen COVID, right? And we will be the four generations making up the world. And we are going to have a very different view of the world. And and so you're going to see by 2040, um, uh, because we're going to see many, many uh, folks you know older folks die over the next two decades so by 2040 you're going to see a dramatically different populace um and and the world is going to be made in their image so these things these are the gears that are happening now and and they're going to play out um they're going to play out in certain ways but but the people raising their voices lobbing ideas into the ring um is just hugely impactful right now and and because nobody knows nobody knows and, and and so if you have if you have promise if you have a good story if you can provide some value you're you know you're you're apt to be listened to at a moment like this
1: yeah yeah so uh yeah people won't be able to say like okay boomer anymore about it but
0: uh
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh i'm curious so so now you live in canada uh where it's a little bit more peaceful we're a small country with like 37 million people. We're not as profit-based and we've done fairly well with COVID. What are your thoughts looking at the U.S. from different territory, from Canada? What's your point of view?
2: Um- Yeah, I I am an American. I grew up um, in Virginia in like the South on a farm in Appalachia. Um, And I lived in New York for 20 years and then lived in LA for two years. And then I moved here to Vancouver uh, about three months ago, right at the start of COVID. My my wife is from here. Um, We've been long planning this, but it got accelerated uh, with COVID. Um, uh, I think that the United States is... um, proving that it's not an advanced society right now. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we've been searching early in, early in COVID, you know, people would point out like, oh, there's, there's very little breakouts in Asia, you know, but yet, you know, uh, so somehow South Korea and Japan and, you know, Vietnam and uh, Canada and the Scandinavian countries, they all have this under control. We don't know what's different about those countries in the US, but they do. Well, I think what's different is that those are advanced societies and what makes them advanced yeah. societies is that there is social trust and that there are institutions that are seen as being in support of the public and that people believe in them and that there have been consistent investments made in social capital social value over time and where you know I like Maslow's hierarchy of needs the theory of of how humans work where at the base level humans need safety and security at the second level, they need others. the third level they need self esteem and on up well the u s has basically climbed to the top of that um, financial security rung of just like wealth um, and the u s yeah. is just partying like they've reached the summit and not seeing that there's a next rung. the next rung is creating social wealth the next rung is caring caring about each other um, and just the culture of the u s has has made has made that very difficult and so here we're seeing this limitation of like the wealthiest poor nation in the world, you know, and, and the US is really impoverished in these ways that are so critical right now of public trust, public institutions, you know, uh, just a, a, collective, a, a collective sense of identity. Um, and it's challenging. You know, I think um, I had assumed Donald Trump would get reelected um, after he was elected at this point, it seems like, you know, all the polls seem to suggest he will not be. Um, yeah. uh, in some ways I don't, I think the future of the US as weird as it sounds, um, it might be the same regardless of who wins this election. Um, I think that the wounds suffered during the Trump era have been uh, pretty extraordinary and especially from COVID. and. If we're in a place of what it looks like, which is maybe there's like 100,000 new cases a day in the US starting within about a month and we're there for a while, like, you know, that's a kind of situation um, that's really unprecedented. And um, so I, I, I have great fear, um, you know, but I, you know, betting against the US is a bad, is a bad idea. Um, yeah. Like yeah, exactly. so much intelligence, so much, So many different kinds of wealth, Um, but, you know, if someone came to you and said, guess what, the story of the the 21st century was that the U.S. had the biggest choke job in history of like giving up a 3-0 lead, you know, and then China took over the world by 2030 uh, and was the new dominant superpower in the world, you would probably nod and say, yeah, that makes sense. Like I
1: yeah japan did it in the 80s right
2: so i mean japan 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 fizzled out i mean they they kind of they you know they they reached a summit and then got pulled down by their own bubble but but yeah i mean i think i think that um i don't know i think the u.s is in a tough spot but the world the world is in a tough spot and 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 there there do become these challenges like you see with the roman empire and some some people are already calling this we're just Nations and organizations and systems become so big, so diverse, so interconnected, so you know, siloed um, that it becomes just extraordinarily difficult uh, to hold them together. And yeah. um, and so I think so I think there are a lot there are a lot of challenging things. But, um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a tough time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point of view.
0: And I completely agree because at the end of the day, you know, it's a, it's a democratic country, right? Like the, Trump didn't just find his way to power. Like people, uh, like citizens of the country voted for him to be in power. Right. So I think that in itself kind of uh, shows a bit of, um, like you said, uh, it's a, it's the wealthiest, most impoverished, impoverished country.
2: Um, also consider that you know three million people voted for him than the other person, and he still won. There's also that to also that to consider. That, that's true. That's true. And, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, in the U.S., you know, of the uh, five presidential contests of the 21st century, the Democrat has won four out of five, but they've only won the presidency twice out of five. Mm. Um, so it is also now a an a democratic a non-democratic system. Mm. Um, so it's crazy. I mean, the U.S. is, yeah. we're, 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 we're really in a situation. But, so, but moving to Canada is interesting, you know, because um, I think that there is a, my wife is a Canadian, explained to me, you know, she said as a, she felt like growing up, she was taught that the goal is to be number two. Because she's like, being number one, there's so much pressure, but being number two is just right. <laughs> and so she's like, she's like, I was raised to go for number two, because it's like going to be the most enjoyable and you're still great.
1: Um, yeah, lots of people believe in like the middle power status here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about middle power status.
1: Um, yeah, I've been reading a few books about it recently. Uh, for me, me personally, I don't know. I'm I'm really interested in in like politics, so I'm I'm really attracted to the superpowers because there's lots going on there. But middle power, it seems like there's way less corruption there you aren't really targeted much like people here in Canada we take pride in uh in trying to lend a helping hand basically it's uh it's it's like a status quo that we we need to fill because we were given that um reputation before so now people see that as one of their main values and yeah basically um yeah people here they they kind of like being the middle power because uh there's not as much pressure like you can go to your lawyer job but then then after you just clock out you can uh kind of chill out and then uh there's there's lots here like people just uh uh, it's hard to explain it but yeah people here just kind of like being with uh with nature it's not really filled with like huge metropolises is what I've heard lots of people say. They just kind of like being more like grounded down to earth. If if I'm explaining it well, I don't. Yeah. And
0: I think personally, like it's um, what I've, t- what I've seen in terms of what I notice is there's a lot less competition. Um, you know, we're, we're uh, the United States has 10 times more people than we do. And, you know, with more people, there's a lot more competition in every industry, right? People are fighting for, for survival, for uh, a profitable uh, career, uh, a profitable life in terms of on a personal basis. So I think here there's a lot of, I think a lot of who you are as a person really depends on where you live and um, the environment you're surrounded in. I mean, even if you go from Edmonton or, you know, even from Vancouver, from Edmonton to Vancouver, maybe even in Toronto, you could possibly see that um, culture that you would see in the U S just because There's so many people, there's so much, um, there's so much hustle. There's so much uh, competition in your environment that you really do strive for that first place because everyone around you is also doing the same. Whereas in Edmonton, it's very, it's very laid back. You know, people are very content uh, with their lifestyle. And I think it really depends on your your geographical location for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I want to add on to that, actually, that got me thinking. So in Canada, like, um, uh the value of the individual is different here because uh look at look at it from a political uh political perspective someone in canada could uh they could run for prime minister and they could get it if they're if they're born even in poverty if they're born in poverty they could become the prime minister if they wanted to and i don't really see someone couldn't really be born in poverty and then become the president of the united states it's it's way harder there's There's more of a, there's more of a system there Mm. and more of an establishment.
0: Like more of a class system, essentially, even like, kind of like the richer get richer and poorer get poorer. And I think in Canada, there's more of a, an even playing field. I think, uh, like personally, I've seen like, if you want to do something, there's opportunity for you here. Whereas in in the US, it's, it's kind of like, if you have money, then you, there's, you have a lot you have a lot better of a chance of being successful than someone who's just starting from scratch and yeah i think even just the communities like i think canada is something you know something like we started from scratch absolutely zero where we're just a bunch of university kids but the community is so supportive in terms of giving you an opportunity giving you a chance to grow from the bottom and uh, i i feel like there's there's a lack of that in the u.s you really do have to there's a lot of criticism you really do have to Work on something for a while to really build it on from the ground up. Is, is there
2: is there a mindset here of like um, like is the U.S. a like a you know a warning story like did you know is that is that I can imagine there are things to emulate. There are also things that maybe you would think you wouldn't want to emulate. Is that yeah. is the, looked at as like is that kind of thing like we're scouting out different opportunities for us or how how do you think about? Uh,
1: it? Yeah, basically uh it's kind of weird because i'm i'm a big fan of the u.s but i will tell you the overwhelming majority in canada kind of see as a warning sign like we all all of us here follow uh u.s politics like pretty much everyone in canada but like my parents will come running downstairs in the morning they're like man donald trump just did this stupid thing like like the u.s did this they have so many cases and people here often i feel like we'd be more likely to look up to countries like Germany or, or Japan or like uh, Britain or something that, that they're, more, they, they're more settled down and they kind of have a, a bit more of a moral compass. If that makes yeah,
0: sense. I, th- I think you hit that last point about having a moral compass is something I agree with as well. Like when you say what well, we think of the U.S., I think a lot of us are like, you know, thank God we're not in the U.S. Like, thank God we're not under that sort of leadership. And personally, like, I've always wanted to go to the U.S. because it's always so glorified, right? The, you know, the American, um, the American lifestyle, uh, living in L.A., New York. But I think uh, after recent times I've seen, like, it really matters about in terms of, like, you know, what, what's the leadership of your country, um, the community, what the values are of the people that are around you. Uh, how do you fit in? Um, are you able to uh, achieve personal and professional success uh, to what degree? Uh, how difficult is it? And um, I think that people have a different set of values. I think if you're someone who's very focused on the economic side and you're like, Hey, I just, I just want to build a profitable business and you have that kind of mindset. Maybe the U S is for you. Right. And you have a lot of money, but for someone like me, I really value um, the the people around me and their mindset and their openness. Um, and I think we have that sort of a community here in Canada where in wherever you go, I think um, the the society is very well diverse in terms of cultures and religion. people are very open minded um, people are very aware of the right val- like the right values, morals, and ethics
2: and so do, do you yeah. think of yourselves as like um say as young Canadians like do you feel a responsibility to uphold those things like? you know uh do you have a notion of what it would mean if you felt your society like going in a wrong direction or anything like that or do you do you like do you do you feel those traits are strong in your friends and communities of people 100 percent. i think um
0: uh, you, you really you can really sense it even just the ways of minor interactions like i've been to the u.s multiple times uh minor interactions we we're talking about opportunity professional opportunity um you know, leadership, even in terms of like the COVID situation, even in Black Lives Matter, like, yeah, there is racism in Canada, but everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter in can like in the U.S., there's no chance that could, you know, it's very difficult for that to happen in Canada because if people have such an open mind, people have such, uh, even with Justin Trudeau, like you see what he's done with providing people compensation with CRB and COVID and um, just focusing on people's well-being. And I think the difference is Canada is a people centric uh, country and um, the United States is an economic centric country. And I think uh, for me, I think personally, I I value people more because if you, if your people aren't happy, then what's the point of having a good economy, right? So, and you know, other people think differently, but that's my perspective to answer your question.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's valuable. I mean, I, you know, I, being here, I feel, I have felt more like more of an American uh, because I think I, um, I assume a certain intent or a certain skepticism or set of beliefs that yeah. maybe as an American, especially the American point of view is also like we are the world. So I just sort of imagined everyone adopted yeah. Right. Um, and so I think it is, You know, I'm already learning a lot through through this experience. Um, And I think, you know, my book and my ideas are really, almost are like what I'm holding as the challenge is kind of the American ideal, uh, which I think has been exported around the world. And, you know, maybe places like Canada have done a good job of putting that perspective in check. Um, But it is trying to make the case, especially to business leaders and people with a lot of influence to, I think to adopt some of the um you know perspective and maybe you know humility is probably not a word any of those folks would want to embrace but maybe the humility that comes with this a little bit of hey it's not it's not just about me it's not just about you there's a there's a bigger picture here but yeah i mean i'm i i i'm like i'm on board i i plan i plan to be here you know um good so i'm I, i'm I'm super into it, and we're happy to
0: have you, right? (laughs) But um, I I think uh, going off of all this, we've had a lot of conversation about politics, ideas, um, you know, COVID, but now I want to talk a little bit about you uh, specifically as a person, Yancy, and uh, uh, talk about your story as uh, as an entrepreneur. Um, You know, in your earlier days when you did uh, go from – you know, being in on a farm in Virginia to um, starting, you know, Kickstarter. And, you know, we're talking earlier about this, where you had this feeling after on your last day. Um, but I think, you know, just to just to start I'll focus on the start for I want to know how you, I guess, even came had that self awareness of that's what you wanted to create. coming I mean, especially because, you know, in smaller cities or small, small towns, you really just focus on uh, you, you open a local business, you do local work and you just, you know, you it's a very close knit community. And, uh, I, I want to know how you got started with Kickstarter and how that really unfolded.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, well just, just, just for our own note, like I, I'll need to stop in probably like 10 minutes or so I have you know, yeah. like, yeah, got thing to start. Um, for sure. um, you know, I, my, my, um, I started as a music critic as a journalist, reviewing records for places like Pitchfork and spin magazine and um, and you know i didn't i didn 't intend to be an entrepreneur I like got jobs inside existing companies, doing editorial kind of things and um, and just discovered that I was good at organizational thinking and like really thrived in those kinds of environments weirdly, I felt like i was, I felt like I was an artist, so I felt conflicted to be good at those things. It was like it was a I didn't want to be good at the things that I was good at. Um, and then, um, it was during that time I met, uh, a new friend, a guy named Perry Chin. And I met Perry. He, he worked at a restaurant uh, where I went a lot and hung out like a very cool restaurant in Brooklyn. And, um, and one day he asked me to hang out after service. And then he told me about this idea he had had, which was the idea for crowdfunding. And, um, this is in 2005. And, uh, And so we started working on this idea together and and I had no intention of being of starting a company and neither did he. Um, But the idea was so compelling and, and we were very specifically focused on the, on the notion of funding creative projects, um, helping artistic projects, using crowdfunding, like to to create new ideas, not to do charity or any of the other things that we saw it could be used for. And, And so that goal of just, Could we create a universe where new ideas, creative projects could be funded, not because they were a good investment, but just because people wanted them to? Because the money you're putting into Kickstarter projects, there's no financial upside, it's not an investment, it's somewhere between a pre-order and a a donation. And, um, And so could we create a universe where ideas are funded without that selfish upside? To motivate it, but instead, just because it's cool, or because like the creator's cute, or just like you know this tech would be rad, and um, and and so you know there was like four years of uh, since after I got involved of trying and failing to get the site off the ground. Um, me and Perry and then Charles Adler, who we met shortly afterwards, it's uh, also Kickstarter co-founder. We're not engineers. Um, we all more had art, artistic, creative backgrounds. There was a big challenge of, like, not having the skill sets we needed to execute. Um, but, but it did, you know, it, it did. It did, of course, launch after four years. But one of the things that was so critical, I mean, as, as people, Charles and Perry and I are all quite different, uh, but on like the core level of what our idea of success was, we had a lot of agreement. You know, we all came from music and art. And to us, like the idea of selling out, you know, making something and then like commercially exploiting it so you could pull yourself out of the scene. was like the lamest, most shameful thing you could do. And so we had this mindset from the beginning that we wanted to build an institution. We wanted to build something that was never going to try to leave the community. It was always going to be there to support the community and that the community be more important than than the platform itself. Mm -hmm. And that it would just have that kind of like public trust service orientation at its heart. And so that meant that we couldn't try to profit maximize. We couldn't, we wouldn't try to flip it. We wouldn't try to raise as much VC money as possible. Like there were all all these choices that went off the board for us because of the specific notion of success that we had. And as we started having success, um, We didn't deviate from those positions. In fact, they became even more important to us because they distinguished us from other tech companies. And and they ultimately came to be real great assets of differentiation in the market and versus competitors. And we came to feel a responsibility to these choices we would made, like say becoming a public benefit corporation or choosing to not to become public And we felt a responsibility with those decisions that we were trying to model out a different kind of behavior for future entrepreneurs. And so we were thinking about those choices, not just in terms of like what was right for us, but thinking for the people starting something now, how do we make it easier for them to like, not just take the greedy money hungry path, uh, which is what a society is gonna default, an American society is gonna default its businesses into being. Um, and so that was just like a real just like a, a conscious daily thought uh, to try to end up on that different kind of destination
1: yeah, and uh, i 'm curious, so um, one dream of mine is that I want to uh, move to New York for at least at least a few years or like a decade in my life. It just seems uh, like such a prosperous city, but the thing is, not everyone can can make it there like there 's the um, there's a common saying that if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So was it hard for you to get started there for you guys being in New York? Was it, was it harder, or easier? And, uh, did you feel like, like you made it there and you can make it anywhere basically?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I moved to New York, I guess for some of those same reasons, if it just seemed like the, the place. Um, yeah. And, uh, You know, I moved there right out of college. I hated it my first two years. But the trick is, is like you're too broke to leave. Um, uh, And so you're just kind of trapped until you figure it out. So I ended up doing 20 years after like being miserable the first two. Um, So it is a city that puts you in a, yeah, just high pressure, like surrounds you with extremely accomplished people, people trying to be accomplished. But I think that like, I think the internet is New York now. I don't think you need New York. I think you just yeah. need the internet. Um, I think that's where, all every, that's where all the cool people are, because yeah, it's where everybody. Yeah, that is. makes sense. And um, so I think that the need for those physical scenes, um, and I think this might be to our detriment potentially, but I think that is going to be less important, and um, and that it's going to be like, yeah, the internet is going to be just a better version of that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so Yancy, I guess um, I know you have to go soon, but um, just to finally ask, like two, three last questions: um, When was what was it like? Obviously, you have spent so much time building Kickstarter. What, what was the what was the moment like when you really realized that you know you've built a success uh, with the platform? You and uh, Perry Chen together have built this um, successful company that is you know just from the ground up. And what was that moment like for you? And even just, uh, even, you know, we are talking about this earlier, but even just leaving on, on that, on, on your last day after, you know, building something up, something from the ground up and looking back at it and saying, you know, who would have thought, right?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was a, you know, just an a, a, amazing experience for me. Um, uh, just being able to see, that journey of an idea going from kind of zero to 60, um, to know firsthand what it takes to do that, um, to, you know, have those like experiences that create relationships and, you know, all all that is just like, um, you know, it's just such such an amazing period uh, of my life and and you know and i think even if it hadn't turned out as well as it did in the end i think a lot of the meaning would still be there of just pushing yourself right you know just doing something that's that you didn't know whether you could do um and yeah just the amount of like maturation and, and and that happens in that is it's really amazing um and um but these things don't last forever. I mean, that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's what is difficult. I mean, you know, maybe sometimes they can, but um, you know, generally, I think we all have just so many. We can only run so many legs of the race, right? It's like you can't—you can't do the whole thing. And jobs like being a startup founder, being a startup CEO, um, those are such high-intensity jobs. You know, you can't—you can't do them. Uh, you know, exceptionally well for, for that long. Like, I think you need, you need breaks, you need structures, or, or you need the notion of like, I'm, I'm going to do this for five years. And then the next person who's right to do this, will do it, you know, for, for what's right at that moment in the organization's life. Um, But for me, you know, after, after 10 years of it, like I, um, I was tired and, uh, and I, honestly just felt like i I probably wasn't the best person to do that job that um you know like i've never i'd never been the ceo of a 150 person company before i'd never you know all these things that were new and and i you know i liked those challenges and i felt i was good at them but there was also like there's a fair number of things here i'm having to learn how to do for the first time and is that is that is that what we need you know is that the right thing um and so you know so i after a lot of soul searching like i i opened up that conversation and, and 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 in the end you know came to the conclusion which is not what i wanted but came to the not what i intended when i began but came to the conclusion that yeah i i don't think i should do this anymore and um and that was very very hard and and left me lost for a while um but i do remember on the very last day you know i i gave an all hands to the company and told the company about this and um, and uh, and afterwards like you know everyone you know I give like this five minute talk and everyone stand, give the standing ovation, hugging all these people that I love and and you know walked out the door not long after and I came to feel like this was a for me personally like what a what like a storybook kind of ending of thinking of meeting a friend in a restaurant and it turns into all of this ten years later and um, and creating, really creating an institution, creating a thing that does good in the world, that fulfills its purpose. Um, and, uh, And just feeling grateful and just thinking like, you know, I got everything I could have asked out of this and more, and I could keep hanging around trying to squeeze out, you know, a little bit more meaning, a little bit more ego, a little bit more whatever out of it. But I don't know, is that necessary? Or, or isn't this hasn't this already been like way beyond what I could have ever asked. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that, that was a, a, a very positive place to get to, right. To be, to be able to appreciate, uh, to appreciate what it is and, and not want it to be more. And, um, and, and so I think even recognizing that is all part of this larger experience of just, of whether it's entrepreneurialism or, or anything else, where you, you just put yourself to the test. And, um, and, and the amount of knowledge that, you know, on the other side of that, and, and the, the ability you have to hold yourself in a way that isn't selfish, that is, that is like in service, um, you know, all those things just get so, you just accelerate and, and really blossom in a person. And, uh, and so, like, I would wish for everyone to have experiences like that, whether it's entrepreneurial or Service or creatively or whatever, whatever that is for for you. I mean, just those kinds of tests, those kinds of crucibles uh, are just tremendous. And, um, and and you know the world is and COVID is putting all of us through one right now. Um, and so how each of us navigates this, right? It's it's really maturing us and changing us. And so you know these are all opportunities to manifest better and better versions of ourselves to live up to our bento to become coherent with who we most deeply are and um and you know they're just invitations to, to do that and to step up and i would encourage people to, to not let them go by
1: awesome yeah
0: well i guess first of all i want to acknowledge even i think even as uh, as an entrepreneur myself I, I i think there's huge courage and huge uh a huge strength that that's required to really say you know just accept that you know you just don't find happiness in something and something that you build and something that's comfortable and just leaving and starting from scratch starting a brand new journey I think uh, that's something that I you know highly respect and you know appreciate and um, you know I, I know you have to go soon but um, so I mean you know thank you for coming on the podcast It it really was a pleasure I mean we Usually, our podcasts are very, we talk about the person more, but I think it was a, this was a very different type of podcast where we got to yeah. um, really build on some concepts and have have those deep talks and converse about them and just go back and forth and saying, you know, what do you think? And it, it was a unique podcast, but I really, really enjoyed, um, I guess, experiencing your wisdom, your experience, uh, your knowledge. Uh, you know, you talked about the concepts of bentoism, which were very foreign, but very interesting to me. And just a bunch of other stuff. And I think Jaden probably has something else to say as well.
1: Yeah. um, I really liked this uh, episode because it seemed more like a, it seemed like a really nice, like intellectual conversation where we got to uh, exchange our own perspectives on certain topics. And I'd like to say to everyone listening, uh, go check out his book. I know I'm about to, right after this, I'll order it on Amazon because I'm excited to see what's in that book and, and yeah.
0: And I'm drawing up my four squares right after this. I'm going to go check, you know, what's my future. Yeah, my bento,
2: yeah, bentoism.org. And then if you want to come to the weekly bentos, what is what it's called? You can just go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash weekly bento. Just leave your email and you'll get the invites go out each week. Um, uh, but yeah, please, please check it out. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thanks, thanks for schooling me on the ways of Canada. And I'm glad to be uh, glad to be a new, a new Canadian. Uh, we welcome you with open
0: arms. So <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, that. thanks so much. It was really a pleasure. Uh, thanks for your energy. Thanks for your humility. Really appreciate the conversation. And we'll see you. And see you guys. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, another episode for you guys. Hopefully I have more coming up soon. And thanks for watching. Please like and subscribe and share. Bye-bye.
1: Peace.